0: Hello and welcome to Backchat. If the Nature Podcast is a stern meeting with your PhD supervisor, then Backchat is drowning your sorrows in a pub with your lab mates. This month, the endless quest to make energy from fusing atomic nuclei, virtual reality, and of course, the biggest story of the month, a boat gets given a name. I'm Adam Levy, and chatting back today, we have Dan Cressy. Hello, I'm
1: Daniel Cressy. I'm one of the senior reporters here at Nature, and I am here to rant about a boat. We have
2: Andrea Taroni. Hello, I'm Andrea Taroni, the chief editor of Nature Physics.
0: And last but not least, we have Davide Castelvecchi.
3: Hi, Adam. I'm Davide. I am senior virtual reality correspondent.
0: Coming up this month, we ask how hard it can really be to fuse some nuclei and power the world, how virtual reality can affect research, and how a research ship's name became the most controversial question in science. First up to virtual reality, Davide, you took a little break from actual reality recently, right?
3: Yes, in fact, it was a very fun story to report. Um, It was an article about how these very much hyped... New uh, virtual reality headsets are uh, attracting interest not only from serious gamers but also from researchers who can use them as an experimental tool and also as a lab tool for other, you know, for, for their own use.
0: And you actually tried one of these
3: headsets out. What what was your experience like? I get to try the um, Oculus Rift, which is made by this company owned by now owned by Facebook, and I have to say it was a lot more fun than I expected. And I almost didn't want to come back to a real reality. You know, when, it, when I took off this, this, uh, this thing, I, I turned around and it was like, wait a minute, this is a lot more boring now. Well, that sounds very impressive and also
0: very immersive. Unfortunately, our budget couldn't quite stretch to the same level of technology. I have here a model of Google Cardboard, which to in the studio you'll be able to see as a makeshift cardboard box with a velcro strap on the back dan do you, would you like to try it try this out sure what are you going to show me so i'm going to show you the guardian's recent immersive experience which is called six by nine put the phone in here
1: for those of you who do not have pictures adam is about to strap a cardboard box containing an iphone to the front of my face
0: So uh, you're going to experience that without sound, which is going to take at least half the fun away. I feel like I'm in a toilet cell. Okay, we'll carry on talking seriously while Dan goes on a little voyage. Now, a lot of the time, subjects in experiments aren't human. Are they doing any work to make things like the Oculus work for, say, monkeys?
3: Yes, so so there's a lab in the US where um, they do experiments by showing monkeys images on a screen, uh, you know, there's, there's like virtual bananas, um, that is not very immersive an experience to just see things on a, on a monitor. And so they are trying to, to hack these headsets to adapt them to monkey's head so that they can actually let the monkey experience this 3D world.
0: To me, I have to wonder, is this actually creating a virtual sense of being in that place or are we going to miss some things by looking at virtual reality rather than actually creating these environments?
3: One advantage is that you get very controlled, very reproducible conditions. There's also experiments in which they basically strapped fruit flies to a system where uh, there were basically there was kind of like a flight simulator projected on a screen and electrodes in the fruit flies brain and, and they could tell how the, the the fruit fly's brain basically uh, perceived this, this, uh, v- these virtual images. So I'm sure there's pros and cons. It's not an entirely natural environment, but it's also, you know, it allows you to do experiments that you couldn't do in a normal, in a real environment. I remember um,
2: maybe in the early 2000s, late 90s, there was a lot being said on television about reali- uh, virtual reality, and it always looked kind of a bit you know, not very realistic. It was very choppy graphics and you just kind of thought, well, that's not, that's not really ever going to become a mainstream thing as it, as it was then. Has it dramatically improved now? I mean, would you say that, say those concerns of choppy graphics have totally gone out of the window, it really feels much,
3: much more realistic? The one I've tried felt more like a very high quality uh, 3D video game except that instead of being on, on a monitor, on a computer monitor, it was a world that it was immersed in. And it was not choppy at all. So one of the amazing things about, uh, you know, technology now is that basically there, there's, there's motion sensors that can tell how you're moving, and, and they respond very quickly to adapt the images. So that means that you actually have the perception that the thing is, is a natural environment.
0: Dan, what Davide's just described is quite a high, high-end high version of things based on the kind of cardboard sellotape together virtual reality headset that I just gave you. How would you describe your, your experience of virtual reality?
1: Well, my experience of virtual reality just now was a small cell with a toilet in the corner, so not the most glamorous thing. But um, I don't think anyone's ever going to be fooled with the current technology of any standard that they're actually somewhere else you're always aware that it it's virtual reality right but that doesn't mean that you can't do useful experiments with these systems
0: now three quarters of us in this room are journalists of some kind and this isn't just something that could be useful for research the the thing i just gave dan was six by nine which was uh developed by the guardian to report on uh, solitary confinement and he was experiencing it without sound so all he could actually see was this tiny little cell with a toilet in the corner but is this form of reporting something that we should be taking seriously? Should we be doing bat chat as a virtual reality experience? Or is this a gimmick at this stage?
1: Like any form of journalism, it's all about the content. So there's lots of gimmicky stuff because virtual reality is trendy or cool or whatever at the moment. And actually, unless you've got something that needs to be delivered in that way, why are you doing it in that way?
3: But the, I could see uh, situations in which it could create an entirely new Content. So, for example, I had the luck of visiting um, the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, last year. You know, I, I went down this this thirty meter shaft in in into this enormous cavernous hole uh, to see uh, one of the detectors. And and so then I imagined people people do three D films, and I imagined what an amazing way of uh, you know, giving a virtual tour uh, for a place like like the LHC that not many people get to experience.
0: And and why limit it to Earth? Why not fly around a planetary nebula or something like that?
3: Yeah. So, for example, in fact, um, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, the NASA lab, they are experimenting with virtual reality and augmented reality to recreate the experience of walking on Mars.
2: This just reminds me, of course, that virtual reality has been very useful in flight simulation. It's it's a standard part of the training of all pilots.
0: A a lot of this makes me feel like a bit of a lad. I tried out the 6x9 virtual reality uh, by The Guardian, and I'd also listened separately. They had a podcast on the same theme, and I found the podcast a lot more immersive than the virtual reality but I don't know whether (laughs) I just have some inherent bias because podcast is medium that I work in. If virtual reality was easily available are there any stories that you've worked on or any papers that you've worked on Andrea that you think oh it would have been great to have some virtual reality SI here?
2: Um, The short answer is no not really not yet at least. The reason why we have papers is essentially because the easiest way to convey very complex results is to just tell a story about it.
1: And there are some there are some papers where. Having a rotating image or something that you can move yourself is clearly massively useful, say crystal structures, proteins, things like that. It would be great to be able to move around that kind of object, whether that's through virtual reality or just some sort of online image that you can manipulate. Actually, that's an excellent point, yes.
3: Yeah, so I don't think it's going to replace necessarily other media, but in some cases where it's appropriate, it could complement
1: And the issue is it's going to take a while for people to work out what it actually is useful for. I mean, someone mentioned the example of 3D movies earlier. And the first 3D movies, you were expected to just sit there and be amazed that it was 3D, even though there was no plot and the whole movie was just something coming out of the screen at you. Now, 3D is an accepted part of movie making, and it's just something that's layered on top of all the other things you expect in terms of plot and
0: storyline and and whatever else. So do you think this gimmicky notion that to me at least still surrounds virtual reality is kind of a hump it goes over before it just becomes an acceptable way of telling stories well either it becomes an accepted technology and we
1: stop even really considering it and just do things with it or it dies out because it's a bit of a stupid gimmick where you have to strap something to your face and i don't think we really know watch this
0: face (laughs) (laughs) Moving on now from a technology that seems to be coming of age to a technology that's been stuck in puberty for decades Andrea you your editor of Nature Physics and you recently ran a special all about nuclear fusion power the process of fusing atoms together to generate electricity Physicists have been grinding away at fusion for ages and no matter when you check it always seems like it's 30 years away Why do you think that this was worth having a special issue about now? So yes, that joke is the uh, staple of um, plasma
2: physics or nuclear fusion uh, has been like that for about 30 years. Um, so why why now? The, the reason is quite simply, um, we felt that it was pretty much our duty as a journal that covers physics to try and sort of even-handedly... Uh, Try and take a snapshot for what the actual progress has been over the past thirty years, and what the actual challenges are in the next thirty years. And it turns out that there's been a great deal of progress, and that maybe this background cynicism is is while it's understandable, it's certainly a little bit unfair because it's it's really an incredibly challenging um, goal that scientists have set themselves. You know, I think it's fair to say, as physicists, we're we're kind of at least I personally. rather sold on nuclear fusion, I think it's certainly something worth worth um, pursuing. Um, th- in terms of timing, it felt the right time because ITER, which stands for the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, which is being built in the south of France. Um, it's a giant project um, involving, I think, the European Union and six other countries. Um, this is finally being built. And so it felt like it was the right time to sort of try and present the, a snapshot of what's going on.
0: You mentioned that you're fairly sold on nuclear fusion. You have actually a bit of a family history I, with nuclear fusion.
2: I do. Um, so uh, as you can tell, my name is, is Italian. I was born in Italy. Um, the reason I, as a child, moved to England is because my parents were actually plasma physicists and they worked for Jet. Um, in which you can run experiments uh, of this kind. Um, And uh, so, yes, um, I've heard a lot about fusion in in my sort of, you know, around the dinner table as a kid. I was never interested, um, but now as a professional editor, uh, I've taken an interest.
1: Can you give us a a day for when we will get fusion power?
2: So what do you mean by fusion power An actual deliverable technology? Yeah.
1: Is it going to be before we all end up in our graves? My view
2: is that, yes, it will be. I think there's two things to, to make clear here. Firstly, there is a scientific and engineering challenge of actually demonstrating it's possible. However, even if ITER managed to achieve all of their scientific goals, the actual challenge of turning it into a commercial technology is quite a separate one. I would say that's actually the big challenge. It's conceivable that ITER might be a scientific success, yet we don't find a way to make nuclear fusion
0: economically viable. Why is it such a demanding thing. Why is it such a hard physics problem? When I think of other things which begin with the word nuclear, I think of things like the nuclear bomb or nuclear fission, the process of splitting the atom to to release energy. Why is nuclear fusion so much harder than those things, not that they were a walk in the park? Fission and fusion
2: are kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. So in, in fission, you're taking a very heavy Radioactive, therefore unstable, giant atom which essentially can't wait to be broken into bits and release energy in fusion. You're trying to reverse the process and overwhelm um, sort of very strong uh, uh, nuclear forces so that you can then smash atoms into each other you're dealing with um, exceptionally um, sort of extreme regimes of, of, of matter. The analogy I've heard used by, well, by my parents actually is that it's like trying to hold jelly inside a bunch of rubber bands. The upside is that this is essentially, um, you know, the materials you need to make these reactions are environmentally completely safe. So it almost seems too good to be true. You basically put very little safe material into a plasma, get an enormous amount of energy
0: out of it, and your waste product is essentially negligible. It definitely seems like it remains a huge physics problem, but I don't know about the rest of you, but it seems like the nuclear fusion community also have something of a PR problem these days.
2: It's fair to say um, that the brightest students, the people that, you know, um, historically have done really well in physics degrees have tended to be attracted to, say, high energy physics, they've, they've wanted to work um, with, you know, those great scientists working at, at, at the LHC, um, or working in theoretical physics, I would say that uh, um, ITER and, and, and nuclear fusion as a field more broadly I think it really has its work cut out to try and attract sort of the next generation, the hearts and minds of sort of future scientists. Um, and it's not at the moment, I think, um, being presented in, in the best possible light. The issue is is partly, of course, related to the fact that it's taken so long to, to make what the
1: at least the wider public consider meaningful progress. When you look at fusion and the problems, though, are they mainly theoretical science problems at this point? Are you actually talking about engineering problems?
2: They go hand in hand. It's it's mostly engineering problems, and then you realise, oh, we
1: didn't expect this. We need to basically come up with a theory as we go along. I think this is the the problem that fusion sometimes has, is we all sit here and we go, why haven't they done it yet? Because we're all taught in school. Fusion is very simple, you know, you take these these atomic nuclei and you smash them together and there comes your energy and actually it's way more complicated than...
2: There's also a historical um, sort of perspective here when, uh, you know, everyone... Nuclear. Normally people think about the nuclear bomb. Now the nuclear bomb, that happened extremely quickly. Um, And then within 10 years of of the war being over, so that would be 1945, I think, I'm not sure now, but 1955, 1956, the first actual commercial use of nuclear fission was already online. So it only took them 10 years. For fusion, people felt, well, this is great. We can kind of clear our, our moral conscience here and do something which benefits everyone. And if the Fission guys took only 10 years to do
0: it, how hard can it be for us? Well, it was a lot harder. When I hear about how complicated it is, I find it slightly amazing that the sun worked out how to do it.
2: Well, the sun has the advantage of being enormous and, being, and the, the big issue is we can't get um, on Earth pressures comparable to what goes on in the sun. So
0: the sun kind of took the easy approach? I think so. Can the rest of you think of any other examples of big experiments that have taken a huge amount of time to to complete or maybe still open? I was thinking the discovery of gravitational waves. That was something that was about a century in the making.
3: Like it was an excellent example where people at first said, you're out of your mind, you'll never be able to do that. Um, and an- another one that I thought was spectacular was a NASA probe called Gravity Probe B, which was uh, uh, designed to test some of the effects of general relativity. But uh, Gravity Probe B was first thought up in 1962. And the, 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 the kind of uh, technology that would have been required to measure these effects did not exist. And it would not exist for decades after that. I I went and and visited their lab uh, about 10 years ago and I spoke to this person who ended up working on the project for 40 years and eventually saw it going into orbit in 2005. I think physics has
1: often had a lock on these kind of huge projects because it seems sometimes from an outside perspective like the physicist's solution to any problem is to ask for lots and lots of money to build a really big machine. And that's traditionally not been the case in a lot of other fields. Although there are increasing examples of big biology projects, I think the Human Genome Project is a Um, A good example there, although that didn't take as long as some of these physics projects.
0: The project to halt global warming is still massively underway in spite decades of work. I think the project to warm the planet is still underway after decades of work. It's it's just getting started. (laughs) Now that we've uh, solved nuclear fusion and got our heads around virtual reality, it's time to tackle the most pressing business of the day. Yes, of course, it's Boaty McBoatface. On the off chance that any of our listeners have been living under a rock, Dan, could you explain what the Boaty McBoat face is, or rather what it isn't? In an age of global warming and fusion, what has
1: the British public and Britain's parliament chosen to concern itself with what we should call a new research vessel. We're getting, in the UK, a shiny new polar research vessel, uh, probably around 2019. And the people who run it decided to have an online poll to ask the public to suggest names. As anyone who's ever asked the public anything will tell you, that did not go to plan. And
0: what was the the winning entry? The most popular name was Boaty McBoatface. But... This isn't the end of the story. It wasn't just, oh, great, now we've got a boat called Boaty Mo- boat face the end. There was ensuing controversy. That's right. The actual name this ship is going to have is not the public's choice of Boaty McBoatface.
1: Instead, the boat is going to be named after TV naturalist David Attenborough, and a small submersible which will operate from the vessel will be given the name Boaty McBoatface. Um, And this has prompted some discussion about whether this is a PR triumph, because lots of people have been talking about this wonderful new polar research ship, or a PR disaster, as the public's will has been denied.
0: Do you feel engaged Davidian and Andre. It's true.
2: I didn't really spend any time thinking about what this Antarctic vessel is going to do, um, and I'm you know, a scientist, so so I do wonder if it was just quite superficial PR. I mean, in that very successful, but ultimately superficial PR.
3: I'm maybe a little bit less cynical. I think that yes, I mean, you, you, you're not going to have you know, 40 million people reading up on polar science all of a sudden, but I think that you know at least. Uh, A substantial percentage of those people maybe read an article in which maybe there was one paragraph talking about polar science, and it's it's more than probably more exposure than uh, polar science has ever had.
0: Personally, I'm even less cynical still. I think that the ship should have been called Boaty McBoatface and that is where the real public engagement would have started because if the ship had gone out on its voyages named Boaty McBoatface and you could follow the adventures of Boaty McBoatface on Facebook or on Twitter, then I think the public would have maybe learnt something about its research aims.
1: The Boaty McFacebook boaty. <laughs> I, I'm slightly torn on this as someone who always wants to see more marine science in the pages of nature and in the pages of national newspapers. I'm pleased that we're getting the chance to talk about some of these issues. But fundamentally, this is a boat that's going to explore some of the least known regions of the planet. It's going to be, have these amazing new scientific capabilities. It's going to carry researchers to the farthest points of the globe and smash through ice to get there. And the only reason that the public's interested in it is it's got a silly name. I mean, to go back to the comparison with physics, no one needed to call the LHC like smashy McSmash face before people were interested. And we didn't need to call the Mars rovers like Rover McRover face and draw funny faces on them to get people interested. And it's a bit disappointing that to get marine science on the public radar, this has to happen to it. And yet... The
3: uh, latest uh, NASA rover uh, has been named by, if I remember correctly, uh, uh, an American elementary school child who proposed the name Curiosity. But you could argue that's quite a good name.
0: Clearly the wisdom of an elementary school child is better than the wisdom of the whole internet combined, in this case at least. This isn't a one-off, it isn't only the ocean sciences that have to put up with the wrath of the internet. There have been other instances of things getting less fortunate names. So in, in 2007 a humpback whale which was tagged by Greenpeace was actually called Mr Splashy Pants. I think is a wonderful name for humpback whale online votes also uh, asked to send taylor swift to play a charity concert at a school for the deaf and send justin bieber to tour north korea so this seems like a problem which is endemic with asking the internet any kind of sensible question what why are we still doing it I think, again, this we can talk about how you measure engagement
1: and, and NERC has been, the research council involved, NERC has been very pleased and they've said something like 250 pe- million people were reached by this event and 23 million people used their hashtag. And we see this in journalism as well. People are, really want to know like, how many tweets, how many retweets, how many readers, but these are very unsophisticated metrics for working out what people have actually understood and what people have taken away from it.
2: Well, are any names a bit like Curiosity Rover, like actually simple but quite good names that were
1: suggested? There is something of a tradition, I guess, especially with polar vessels, for calling them things like Endurance and giving them sort of names that you, you sound like you could withstand a good winter in one of these places. But yes, Explorers is, is something of a tradition in the UK. The current vessels are the James Clark Ross and the Ernest Shackleton. Um, Attenborough is interesting in some ways because he's still alive. Um, And although I don't think anyone would dispute his achievements, most ship names to my knowledge at least, are given for people who are some way past, so there's some sort of historical perspective on their importance and their relevance.
2: I just realised, of course, we're forgetting the names of the four new elements um, in the periodic table. In my honest opinion, it should just be a Greek name and that is it, um, like all the other elements out there. Um, instead, people are suggesting things as silly as Lemium after um, Lemmy from Motorhead. I found that somehow... A little bit disrespectful of the discipline. I I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I felt that you should give them a serious name.
1: I mean, it's an open question as to whether they would have called it David Attenborough if they hadn't needed to in some way placate the public with a name that no one could really argue with. He may even get to launch a boat named after him, which I think has only happened previously with the Queen.
0: The thought of that makes me really uncomfortable. It's like when people name their children the exact same name as them.
1: What's your father's name?
0: Well, let's not go into that. Thank you all for joining me, Davide Castelvecchi, Dan Cressy and Andrea Tironi. If our audience want even more of your chats, where can they hunt you down on Twitter, Dan?
1: I'm obviously considering changing my name to Twitter Twitter McTwitterface or something similar, but I'm currently D.P. Cressy. And
2: Andrea? I'm currently Tironi Andrea. I'm Davide.
1: I'm Di Castelvecchi.
0: And if you want to read my Witterings, I'm at Climate Adam. If you're a fan of the show, do head over to iTunes and leave us a glowing review. It would be like a tiny, very poorly timed Christmas present. That's all from us. Thanks for listening.